This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. From our living rooms, as we practice social distancing, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind BattleBots. I'm Luke. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with Quantum Captains James Cooper and Grant Cooper. Chris and Lindsay are away this week, saving their garden from the tropical storm that is bearing down on the East Coast as of Monday night. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BehindTheBots. And check out our website at BehindTheBots.com. Tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have seven news items for you today. First up, Witch Doctor Captain Andrea Galately is out with a new video in the team's Witch Doctor Junior series, this time all about batteries and chargers. Kyle, I, I will admit, when I first saw that uh, Andrea was going to talk about batteries and chargers for 20 minutes, I was convinced that this was going to be the most boring out of all of the videos in the series. But this was such an interesting video. I, I, um, I feel a little embarrassed to say that I actually know nothing about batteries <laughs> and <laughs> I learned so much freaking information about batteries and it was like eye-opening all right like um I I learned what all of the markings mean on the side of a lipo battery how to calculate total battery capacity and how to calculate whether your battery is strong enough to power your robot in its current configuration with its motors and all of that. Super informative, totally educational, highly recommend. Uh, this is absolutely just amazingly uh, good content for people uh, who are building their first combat robots like, like we are. <laughs> Speaking of which, Doctor, the Galatelys continue to work on their ambulance camper van this week, finishing the kitchen and water system. The Galatelys are outfitting their ambulance camper with a 30-gallon freshwater tank and a propane-powered water heater, which will power the bathroom and shower. Kyle, I know that you saw photos of these. I, I'm so curious, like, where the bathroom is going to go, like, inside of the inside of a uh, an ambulance. Um, thoughts thoughts on this uh, this build now six weeks in. Uh, so as a young family dad, uh, I have been coveting campers for the majority of the summer. Um, that seems to be the trend right now. Camper sales are up around the world. Um, everybody's figuring, hey, if I can't get a hotel room and fly on a plane, I'm just going to get one of these, which I think might have something to do with what the Galateleys are doing. I think they might be looking for a nice place to live when they travel cross country to um, maybe fight in a tournament that may or may not happen. We'll see. Um, but 
I will say I was really impressed that they got a 30-gallon water tank on that sucker. That's fantastic. And I think they're probably going to end up going with, uh, like, a wet bath. Have you seen the, like, shower-commode combinations that they use on a lot of campers, like smaller campers, where it's, like, one small room is both your toilet and your shower? Kyle, not only that, but I've traveled extensively through terrible hotels, and uh, I've used those many times, like in my uh, my backpacking adventures around the world. Ah, yes, yes, it would be exactly the same thing, yes. Um, But, you know, on wheels, so not so bad, but yes. uh, So it's going to be essentially that, I think. I don't know exactly, obviously, but I I think that's what they're going to do. I'm impressed with what they've got going on. It's a cool setup. It'd be really hilarious if they went the other direction and they just put in like a full bathtub and, uh, you know, separate shower, like, you know, whole like uh, futuristic toilet, you know, just the whole back of the ambulance is just this glorious uh, bathroom setup, you know? <laughs> yeah. Instead of seating, they just have a, a nice bathtub, like a hot tub jacuzzi <laughs> back there. You can sleep in the bathtub. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On over to Team Wayachi, which is fully embracing its comic book aesthetic this season, changing the team's profile photo and cover photo on Facebook to a modified version of the Hydra insignia from Captain America. As you know, the team is competing with two bots in the 2020 season, Hydra and Fusion. I was really curious. I didn't know, so I Googled this. Um, I wanted to know if there was a character named Fusion in the Marvel Universe. And... There is. Uh, Fusion is a supervillain who first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, number 208, and is the product of twin brothers who are fused together in a radioactive accident. Kyle, (laughs) when I I was telling you about this, you said that you already knew about Fusion. Like, how come you never told me this? Um, I don't know. They're a super unimportant villain. They were like a part (laughs) of a main um spider-man comic book story they like co-opted dr octopus to be one of their minions for a while which is like kind of crazy because dr octopus is a big deal i think that was badly written honestly um and like they're kind of a ripoff of firestorm from dc as far as their power set goes and their origins go uh, it's like a less interesting version of Firestorm. So no, I never thought to bring it up. But yes, Fusion is a real D-list villain in the Marvel Universe. I love it. And, and you know, they're they're being um, sponsored this season by a comic book company. Um, I'm really hoping that they just, just fully embrace the evil kind of supervillain aesthetic uh, this this season. I mean, I don't see any reason why not. I will say I do worry because I do know that Marvel nowadays is just basically one big um, copyright-creating warehouse. Like, their copyright lawyer staff is three times the size of their writing staff for their comic books. So, you know, I worry about some litigious soul at Marvel catching wind of this robot um and making some choices about it so you know god bless them and i hope they don't get caught by the marvel police well luckily not a lot of people listen to this podcast so uh i think they're gonna they're gonna be safe at least for another week i mean let's just hope no marvel employees listen to this podcast (laughs) on over to cape canaveral florida where the mars 2020 mission successfully launched this past week 
carrying the Perseverance rover, a robot that is now rocketing through space with the goal of landing on Mars in mid-February of next year. Fun fact, Sable's teammates John Mayo, Jake Chesson, and Lucy Dew all worked on parts of the Perseverance rover, which will spend the next five years gathering scientific samples from the planet's surface, which it will send back to Earth aboard another rocket that we're sending to Mars in 2026. So congratulations, John, Jake, and Lucy, on a successful project. Can I, can I tell you a quick story? Yeah, of course. hilarious. Yeah. So um, my son and daughter watched the splashdown um you know the uh the splashdown of the crew coming back from the international space station the first american splashdown in like 40 years or something like that long time yeah uh over the weekend and um this was the first time i think my kids realized that like people really do go to outer space and that's not just science fiction that like we have a space program and like things happen so they had a lot of questions um and my in-laws explained to them that we'd been to the moon so they wanted to see videos of like us going to the moon so i showed them those videos and then they asked of course have we ever been to mars and i said well no we haven't like sent people to mars but we have sent robots to mars we actually have uh three robots on mars right now and um you know they're doing stuff and they're they're analyzing things and i think two of them are still working and uh so of course my kids asked well when are they coming home mm. and i was like well they're they're not they live on mars they they're mars robots now oh well um do they get together and have dinner i said well they're on different parts of the planet so i don't think that they ever see each other and my daughter said but what do we do when they get lonely Oh my God. They've and I written. Thought that was the sweetest thing that anybody could ever say. What do Mars robots do when they get lonely? They they've they've literally just uh, workshopped the uh the the story of Wally, you know. You gotta <laughs> gotta throw that on there, you know, on the TV. <laughs> um, you know, the, the funny thing is by the time that your kids are adults, there will be people on Mars. For sure. And uh, like at, by the time that they are like retirement age, going to the moon will be totally blase. You know, uh, we, we will have Disney World on the moon. Uh, people will be just zipping back and forth from Mars all the time. People will just be annoyed to go to space, you know, like, oh, <laughs> I got a business meeting on the moon. Oh, this sucks. You know, like I got to be away for four days and just the launch is the worst and all of this, you know, the food on the moon is just terrible. Like that'll be like a standard routine and stuff, you know, like it, it will go from amazing novelty to just totally like, just, ugh, you know, <laughs> people will hate it, you know, uh, I just wish I was around for that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's good. That's a, that's a good question. But anyway, yeah. Um, congratulations team Sables on, on, you know, working on this, this project. That is super cool. Very. On over to Team Mobot, which swapped out the motor on its overhead bar spinner Whammo in favor of a more powerful brushless motor, which the team says reduces weight and makes the bot faster to spin up and spin down. The Danby brothers have a lot of trust in that robot, spinning it up in what appears to be an empty parking lot. Mm. An update now to a continuing story as Team Malice continues to push the boundaries of what's possible 
and Team Swag this week unveiling bath products stamped with the Malice logo. You drop these new bath melts into the water and pamper yourself with mango butter, shea butter, emulsifying wax, and fragrance oil. It feels at this point, Kyle, that Team Malice is willing to try any and all forms of Team Swag, which I can absolutely appreciate. I'm curious, what, where is the line? What, 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 you know, what are they not going to put a Malice logo on in the future? You know, this makes me think of that scene from Spaceballs. <laughs> okay. Spaceballs, the lunchbox, Spaceballs, the vacuum cleaner. You know, like they go through all the different merchandising, merchandising, as, uh, you know, as Mel Brooks says. Um, you know, all the merchandising options for, for Malice. I think that uh, they'll go anywhere. You know, I, I can't wait till they come out with a set of Malice power tools. I want a Malice... <laughs> Roomba. Okay. Yes. Wouldn't that be great? That would be fantastic. I would totally go in on the Malice Roomba. Heck, we should talk to Team Mobot and see if they'll do a Malice themed uh, lawnmower for my yard. I'd be into that. I love it. I love it. Oh my God. Chris is dialing in. Wait. Oh. Hello, Chris. Tornado cheated. Tornado um, did, did not cheat. Tornado did nothing wrong. What? He left the meeting. What? What is this? <laughs> all right. That's um, all he wanted to say. And finally, we'd like to wish a very happy birthday to Scorpios weapons operator and friend of the pod, Diana Tarlson, who celebrated her birthday in the most Scorpiosy way possible, ripping open a pinata with her bot's overhead saw, showering candy in all directions in a slow motion video that, at least for me, was reminiscent of their match last season with Sidewinder. And that's it for this week's news. After the break, our interview with Quantum Captains James Cooper and Grant Cooper. This week on the podcast, we have two very special guests, Quantum Captains James Cooper and Grant Cooper. The Cooper brothers build incredible robots for TV shows, commercials, and interactive promotional displays through their company, RoboChallenge. Combat Robotics fans know them for their work on the reboot of Robot Wars, where they built the house robots Sir Killalot, Matilda, Dead Metal, and Shunt. They served as consultants on the show and helped design the new arena, competition format, and official rules. They ran the technical side of the house during tapings and later wrote the official book, Robot Wars, Build Your Own Robot. In China, they competed with the incredibly successful Crusherbot Spectre, which was the Season 1 champion and the runner-up in Season 2. BattleBots fans know the Coopers for Quantum, the gorgeous, shiny Crusherbot that looks like a saber-toothed tiger skull from the Terminator universe with a bite so powerful it spawned a thousand spicy Al Kindle memes. At the close of the 2019 season, the Coopers flew home with a giant bolt, awarded by their fellow BattleBots builders for best design. I am so excited to get into all of these topics in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, James and Grant. Hey, thank you. That, that was quite an introduction. It's kind of sounded quite professional then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I could keep going. Thank you for inviting us on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I so appreciate you also coming on so late your time. Uh, so, you know, full disclosure, we're recording this Monday night at 10 p.m. Uh, English time. So um, so I'll try and keep the uh, the questions brief so that you can get to bed at a uh, normal time. 
We're, we're used to late nights. Don't worry. <laughs> Good. Um, so uh, because I, I, I am uh, terrible at introductions, I was hoping maybe uh, the two of you could introduce one another. So uh, James, could you introduce Grant? And then Grant, could you introduce James? Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. So, so Grant is my slightly younger brother. Um, we've been pretty much working together for quite some time now. Um, we work together really well in that we have a very similar sort of work ethic, but we also look at things from a very different point of view. Um, Grant really specialises in machining, so all the generative stuff. Grant's a real wizard at um, working out how to machine things beautifully and in ridiculous timescales. Um, and yeah, I think we've over the years we've we've had our fallings out, but. Um, we work really well together and we're really good at sort of bouncing ideas and sort of almost challenging each other. So Grant's a really good partner for designing and creating uh, fighting robots with. Thank you. Well, uh, James obviously is my older brother. Um, so Robo Challenge started um, originally as RC was with James and a couple of his friends, actually starting with setting up a club in school um with remote control cars strapping knives and drills and all sorts to the to the top of them um and that's sort of what got got me involved into building robots and and between us we obviously then turned that into robo challenge um and set it up to where it is today so um james on certainly on the later builds with spectrum and quantum has been more involved with the um the CAD design side, particularly when it comes to the generative design um, using Fusion 360 and all the elements in that, um, because we've been working such tight timescales. He's been concentrating mainly on that and on the sort of the visual side of, of how to really make that generative design work for what we want. And then, as James said, I've been the one that's flat out on the machine, getting them made while he's producing the CAD models for me. So, um, yeah, we, we, we've been working really well as a team, especially when it comes to real tight deadlines and especially when it comes to like uh, actually trying to get things machined i'll usually do a day shift and then james will do a night shift keeping machines running and then we'll switch around so um so yeah, it's uh, sometimes a painful working relationship when you're <laughs> stuck under such tight deadlines but um yeah it works really well uh, the the only other thing to add to grant he knows how to abuse the robot in the arena thrashing it round. <laughs> <laughs> we, we run out of tires so fast in these competitions i think pretty much every other battle we have to have new tires on so, so th this is one of the arguments james and i have quite frequently when we're working on designing the robots james is a lot more conservative than i am in saying look you look at robots like bite force and they're not incredibly quick they're just smooth and precise and controlled whereas my side of things is the robot's got a character and that that character's wild so let's let's use every bit of it we can. So uh, James wants to go for smooth and precise, and I just want to go for mental. So um, we kind of end up re reaching somewhere in between. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into this philosophy in a little bit. But um, but you you touched on this uh, earlier, Grant. But you know, can you talk about your early interest in robotics, just in general? You know, like how did it start? Was was Robot Wars and Combat Robotics, was it like the entry into it? Or did you find that later? You know, can you talk about going back to to this this early idea that maybe you'll build things for, for a living? 
Yeah, so um, James is probably the best to explain the very start of it, um, as we were we were so young back watching Robot Wars on TV, and for us it was literally watching something like that on TV that was so much fun and engaging to watch, and just trying to recreate that ourselves with the limited resources we had. Um, it was pretty dangerous, think... wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it was. It, it started off, uh, it was actually called uh, Poly Wars, wasn't it, originally? Um, yeah. <laughs> Our friend Wayne came up with that name. We, we never sort of took to it. But uh, my, my best friend Wayne at school, uh, and I uh, got remote control cars. And this is how little I knew about anything was uh, I lent a remote control car off somebody. And I didn't even think to check if the batteries were charged. That's how amateurly it was. Um, so we, it was called Polywars because all we had was polystyrene to make these shells from and i had a spare pen knife so i gaff take that onto the front and then he had um i think he had two he had a a kitchen knife yeah kitchen knife onto the front and we had such fun um doing that that we we started making this little series where we you know, grant started Grant was made plowbots from the very beginning, and I started working on Raptor, which was like a little crushery claw type thing. Um, and you sort of, I, th- I think we were never sort of engineers as such from the beginning, but we always had that element of of wonder in that we go, oh, what if we did this? I, actually, I I love seeing Razor on Robot Wars. How, how do I? Maybe if I just cut. A bit of the rim off my bicycle and I could strap my dad's old uh, drill onto it. I could get that to move up and down. Uh, here, we weren't engineers, so, so didn't So yeah. just, just for clarification on that, James's first uh, crusher robot was Raptor with a half, cut in half bicycle rim with the end sharpened, uh, some Lego pulleys to get enough force to pull it down with a, with a drill. Um, that he had a cable running to it with the power connected through a paperclip on the side of the controller so when you press the paperclip on the crusher crushed down and you could only hold it on for a few seconds before you burnt your finger so you had to let go and if it, when it when it pierced the potato that's when we knew it was about right <laughs> but it, it, was, it, it was always that sense of all oh, right we've done that now how do we get something to to bite through a bit of cardboard now and and i think that's been our philosophy from the beginning and then you gradually just build on that and go okay well i think yours was the first like proper robot wasn't it grant your plowbot was the first one um and then shortly after that is when we started needing an arena to to run them in wasn't it we we were actually holding a series round there were three or four of us that would hold each week a new sort of competition at each other's house so as was at the back between the cars um with a chalked out arena as well didn't we (laughs) yeah we've actually got the full series uh on tape still which is wow we should put it it on youtube yeah (laughs) see if we can get get that out next week or something yeah yeah, we'll see but uh yeah it it started sort of getting a little dangerous when um we were getting those big cardboard cake bases and uh gluing on large lumps of steel onto the ends and spinning them up with angle grinders and then the steel would fly off or the knife we taped on flew off. Um, and I think Wayne's, did he, he strapped, um, I think he literally sellotaped uh, like a small kitchen knife to a CD to make a vertical <laughs> spinner. Um, 
the, the knife flew off up in the air, miles in the air. We couldn't see where it went. Um, <laughs> and later that day, the Hubble Space Station came down. The, so, the Mir Space Station. Oh, the sorry, Mir one the, the, oh yeah, uh, the Mir Space Station. And we never found the knife, so... Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so it built on from there, didn't it? And then, uh, I remember uh, asking an uh, engineering teacher at school, well, would, could, you know, we, we loved Robot Wars and we said, oh, yeah, we, we really obviously wanted to take part, but didn't really know the first thing about robots. So we asked them if um, to help us. And I think because we'd never really shared any interest before Robot Wars, he, he said, oh, you'd never be able to build a robot, um, which, which at the time it... It didn't really mean anything to us. It was just that, well, if you're not going to help us, we'll, we'll just do it a different way. And that's what we did. And I think that's that's mm. been our philosophy the whole time is that we, we're really proactively type people. And, and if we get excited by an idea, we'll just go, it doesn't matter what it takes to do it. Whatever it is, we'll just do it. If that's what we want to do, if that's what we want to try and achieve, whether it be building our first robot, whether it be, making a Mars rovery type thing. It's just, if we're excited by it, that we'll just go out and do it and we just gradually build it up. Um, and uh, so... We were very fortunate that around that kind of time, um, uh, our family have run a, a manuf small manufacturing firm for nearly 85 years now. Um, and my, my father's been the managing director for, for some time. And so... We had ac well, he had access at the time to um, basic manual machines and welders and things, and so when he sort of helped us get involved really with making our first sort of proper um, featherweight robot, so the thirty pound machines back in two thousand and three, something like that, two thousand three, two thousand and four, um, and so he sort of helped us get on the ladder to sort of be between remote control cars up to sort of proper proper machines. Um, and obviously we we use that then as a learning tool to, to to sort of grow what we've got and and get better at it from there yeah now a couple of years back you you launched Robo challenge um, can you give us like an overview of what Robo challenge is and the types of, of things that you build there so um, so Robo challenge was launched in 2007. Uh, before that, it, it so RC Wars, it, it started out as Poly Wars with remote control cars. Then it became RC Wars because we preferred the name and it seemed a bit more relevant. Um, and our first ever job, so, so at this, sort of stepping back a little bit, so the, the, we, because I really like Razor on TV, I made a, a little featherweight version of Razor and, and it, it was quite, you know, look back at it and actually it, it looks pretty close to it. Um, well, anyway, um, uh, somebody sent, a guy called James Baker sent a picture to Ian Lou saying, oh, this guy's making a, a razor. Have you know about it? And Ian went, had a look into it and found out this, it was a little featherweight one. So he got in touch with us and said, oh, yeah, we'll take you on as like a team razor apprentice, which, which was really cool. Um, so Ian sort of provided a load of images for razor and really was sort of like a, took us under his wing to get us started in the in the featherweight scene so we we were doing that and um we, we started doing demonstrations with razor for schools and things like that and then we developed some little kits that we could take around schools for doing educational programs and teaching children 
elements of the curriculum whilst they built these little kits and then, then they battled them in the classes. Um, and it gradually just kept building up and building up. Um, and then um, we did um, a project for a museum in the UK here. And, and it was actually them that said, oh, we'd love to work with you, but your name is sort of not really right for what what we're doing. They don't like the wars element. So that's when we sort of started from scratch and came up with Robo Challenge. And that, that started in March 2007. Um, initially doing educational programs for schools, doing live events. As we were building our featherweight robots and we wanted somewhere to, to use them. So we made our own arena with polycarbonates um, and then sort of built that up. Um, and the, the first sort of creative projects was for the gadget show. So we did um, power drag racing here as well, sort of on the side. That was a new thing. And we, we helped sort of get that started and the gadget show were there taking part and we we got in touch with them and said oh well, we can help you with some of this sort of stuff you know if you're doing challenges and things so the, the first project that we did for tv show was um building a fighting robot called satan's mutt for gadget show um i think you led that one a bit more didn't you grant yeah well, that, that was sort of two years really of badgering them to to try and get a Robot Wars type challenge on on this Channel Five um, TV show, and eventually, after badgering them, they they said yes, go ahead with it. So it was our first first job, but completely unpaid. So we built this robot that was controlled from a Nintendo Wii balance board and uh, Nintendo Wii nunchucks. So you'd sort of move around on them to control it all, um, and, wow. and that, that that went down really well. Um, so we had uh, obviously Dave, Dave Moulds um, from Cobalt and and, uh, and Carbide. Um, he was there with with his Featherweight 360 um, as one of the Challenger robots on there, um, and a, a few other teams. And yeah, that that went down really well. And from then on, it just sort of went on. It Robo Challenge kind of went on its own course. And of just um, the more work we did, the more work came in um, of these sort of real weird creative kind of projects. So we've done everything from the world's fastest chainsaw-powered vehicle to um, the world's first online Facebook-controlled robots to we've just completed the world's largest mobile kinetic sculpture for for a company. So we we do we now do all sorts of um, one-off projects for big PR stunts and uh, lots of TV shows. Um, Robot Wars being probably one of the headlines. Yeah. This is a good segue into our first listener question from Chomp Captain Zoe Stevenson, who asks, please tell us all about your day-to-day work projects. So can you give us like an average day in the life of the Cooper brothers? Like what, what does an average day look like for you at work? Well, we'd probably come in, play some ping pong. Um <laughs> <laughs> we've we've just renovated our offices and one of the best bits is we, we've got a great big ping pong table in the middle now so so we got pretty good at that over lockdown um but yeah so do, week in week out we're always working on something very different um as i say just before lockdown we just completed a great big kinetic sculpture um which was supposed to go on like a world tour that obviously got paused um and then in the meantime uh, a lot of the stuff that we do is a bit more confidential. So unfortunately with NDAs and stuff, you can't talk about a lot of the stuff that we 
that we get to do because you tend to find that our clients like to say that they did it <laughs> um, but uh, yeah we, so we, whether it's um, designing and developing um, ideas so clients will come to us with generally an ambition of going we're launching this product we're doing this we need like a really cool idea that's going to really draw attention that's not just some kind of online ad or digital media uh, campaign they they tend to when you create something tangible something real something that people can see touch and feel it it has a really positive impact um so for argument's sake you could make the most incredible um cgi transformer robot thing and put it on an advert put it on tv and it would have nowhere near the engagement as a relatively simple robot that you demonstrate in a shopping mall for argument's sake um so there's lots of elements like that's where where we either help come up with ideas for a campaign or they have objectives for it and, and um, we help them make them real. Um, yeah, so it's everything, we, we do everything in-house from, from ideas, research, development, design, uh, creating it and then operating the elements so when, once they're complete. Yeah. yeah. So, so just as sort of as a as a th- as a an add on onto that, sort of our day to day working per se is obviously mostly James and I sort of in our in our offices, sort of doing design work and dealing with the clients and various bits like that, and obviously rushing to get things made. But we actually have a really good team of people that we work with. Um, where as we get busier, obviously we're fairly project based, so our work goes up and down. Um, so James and I are always working sort of full time on this. And then we get a load of, well, in fact, almost all of our workers are uh, Robot Wars teams. So the the skills that people have acquired through the years of building robots are so unique in terms of they have such a broad range of understanding and knowledge of materials, manufacturing and interesting design ideas that it makes them perfect for our kind of work. So I know you guys will all know uh, John Reed from Beta and Kilohertz. He's he works with us very frequently. He does loads of our software development and uh, some of our design work and things. Um, we've got uh, Pete Ware from Magnetar. Um, he does a lot of work with us as well. Um, even like Alan Young is one of our fabricators and things like that. So all of our staff are pretty much all Robot Wars uh, based people because the knowledge and understanding of things that they bring is we feel is far superior uh, for our line of work than than anyone else. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's really good sort of having all these kind of like-minded people all in one space. And I know we've been actually to um, to Zoe's workplace as well, and that's uh, that, that's sort of a similar setup. They've got loads of BattleBots team members there, people who all have that same kind of mindset and understanding, and they create some equally or even more awesome projects in that place as well. <laughs> Yeah. Two two weeks ago, we had um, Zoe and Yasha on the show and they talked about their 10,000 year mechanical clock that they're mm-hmm. building. Um, I, I'd love to hear more about this, this kinetic uh, sculpture, you know, how big is it? Um, how long did it take to build? You know, what does it look like? Um, can you, can you tell us more? Well, hopefully it'll all get revealed at some point next year. Um, oh, it's, it's secret. Yeah, it's, <laughs> It's, uh, it's something that we've been working on. We, we developed a similar project for Nike um, and then this is on a bigger scale. 
Um, so hopefully we can say a bit more about it next year. But um, it's it's always it's always enjoyable to do something quite different and quite challenging. Um, but one of the one of the most fun projects that we've done over the years was um, a project called How It's How Britain Works. Is it Grant? Uh, yeah. Featuring um, a motorbike rider called uh, Guy Martin, and they had a look at original British inventions like the lawnmower and toaster and Faraday um, generator. And we and we were asked to recreate them using traditional methods and traditional um, making it true to the to the original designs, and researching how the original people designed and made them was really uh, really eye opening because a lot of their designs and sketches were just scribbles on the back of a piece of paper, and their patents were awful sort of scribble so you're trying to decipher how they did things and and that was just a different sort of challenge for us but a, a really enjoyable one and you tend to find that all, all of our projects have some element have a lot of sort of research and working out creative problem solving um and that's if it's easy then then we generally don't do it there's tend to be probably better people for the job um so yeah we very fortunate in uh, being able to do like a, a super wide range of projects. One one of the projects that fascinates me the most is um, this Wave Runner, um, where Lindsay Russell tried to run twenty one <laughs> miles across the Irish Sea in this giant inflatable ball. I know that in terms of complexity, it, it's not the world's largest kinetic sculpture or anything like that. But I I thought it was fascinating. Like what what are some of like the challenges involved in running across uh you know an open body of water inside of a ball? Oh well, that that was a. It was a surprisingly difficult project for such a simple um, idea, really. That, and that that took months of testing and various things like that, particularly for safety. So, we we were given a brief of what what had to be done, and we made a very simple test um, test cage around this sort of ball, and took it down to like um, a lake. And did a load of testing and found out that it didn't really work that well. And you were getting loads of water coming into the ball that started filling up um, and other things. So there was huge amounts of testing done, adding like these strange lip rings around each entrance to, so all the water didn't run inside, changing all the shape of the paddles to get sort of the, the sort of your power outputs right. So you could be um, getting a good cadence on your walking at the same time as sort of getting a good speed forward. Um, and simple things like what happens if the ball bursts out at sea with waves. So we even went to like the RNLI test center with the wave machines on, let all the air out of the ball while she was still in it um, and, and sees what happens. And uh, yeah, that, that was a really good one. And then we did two, I believe, two sea trials before the final testing on that. But that was, I would say that was probably three or four months of work and development behind the scenes on that one. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was a... <laughs> and it was incredibly difficult to to use the amount of energy you needed to to keep that thing going was was immense i i went in there and had to go and i did probably half a mile and i, I was about ready to collapse <laughs> <laughs> um 
I, I, I really love your portfolio of work. I encourage everyone listening to go and check out, um, check out your website um, and, and see the rest of it and check out some of these videos, you know, that go along with some of your projects. It's all really, really cool. Um, I, I wanted to switch gears and, and uh, go to China and talk about King of Bots. You know, um, when, I, when I think of King of Bots, I think of Spectre. Like, I feel like um, it's probably the, the best known bot to come out of that, that field of competitors arguably. And um, I, I'd love to, to like understand Spectre, kind of like, how did you design it? What were some of your goals for Spectre when you were initially planning to go to China? Um, can you talk about how you got involved um, with the show and kind of the, the preparation that went into uh, competing on that first season? Yeah, it was, um, I think we, we that's a come off the back of, obviously, we just finished filming Robot Wars and being part of the production team, we were, we knew that we'd never be allowed to compete on the show, which which was always something that we really wanted to do. And obviously Grant's worked with Beta before and been on BattleBots and things. Um, and so we've we've done it, we've competed, but it this, this we've was never done first opportunity. Yeah, we, this was the first opportunity as a family. So there's myself, Grant and my dad, it was the first opportunity to go, okay, well, we can show what we're capable of here. Um, there's there's a few things like looking at it. So th this was a massive opportunity um, to start afresh um, and do something that we really wanted to do. Um, we know that we could have built a vertical spinner and probably wiped most of them out. I mean, you've got big, big machines like uh, Megabyte there, so it, it was never going to be easy. Um, but it, it was a real opportunity to go, well, what would we really like to do? Um, and, it, and over the years, granted, I've chatted about it and gone, if we ever built heavyweights, like, what would we do? And I've always been a firm believer in the hydraulic crusher. And um, I know that it, it's clear that the vertical spinners are, are the meta. You, you can't you can't argue with it. It's the reason why everybody builds them. But you know, if if there weren't any good, nobody would build them. Um, but it, it's I I truly believe that as a competition machine, if every robot had to fight every other robot, a vertical crusher done correctly would beat the majority of other types if done correctly. It, extremely difficult, but um so 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 we started out going well let, let's do let's do a vertical crusher um grants worked a lot on tiberius which um which uh i mean it would stop yeah that, that was originally sam smith's and then it went to ed hoppet from team storm uh so he ran it as photon storm uh grant's done a lot of work on there so grant had a good basis of where probably the best crusher in the world was at that point um and I think we looked we looked at it and Grant in particular believed that we could that we could go quite a bit beyond what was currently being done. So if if we're going to do something, we don't we don't like doing you know, something that's easy or something that we know that can be done. But if we're gonna do it, then we will do you know, we'll put whatever time it takes, we'll put whatever energy it takes into making this the absolute best thing that we can possibly do. So whenever you see stuff that we make, whether it be 
Spectre or Quantum, even if they're rubbish, they're they're the best of our ability given In, the time scale. Yeah, given the time scale is the important bit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're usually built in a, quite a short term. But um, so, yeah, so, so. Yeah, so, so we decided to build this crusher and started looking into options and we sort of split it down to a few things. Um, we look at what do you need to win? Obviously, a weapon is, is critical and we need to do the absolute best job we can of the weapon. But if more important than a weapon is the drive system. Um, and if you don't have a good drive system with the best weapon in the world, you're not going to win. So uh, we put a huge amount of effort into the drive as well, making sure that the wheelbase was right, um, the speed was right, the, the C of G was right, um, and made sure that if we fought Tombstone and happened had what happened to Beta and had all the top taken off, we could we'd try and win with a really good drive system underneath. And so it was sort of a combination of those two separate elements that we almost worked on independently to just make sure they were both as good as they could possibly be. Um, and, and, and sort of worked on it from there. But the actual, like the visual style of it sort of just came as we were designing, didn't it? We, we kind of had a rough shape in mind, but... I think it was really important to us that people didn't think that we were copying Razor. So from from the first moment we said, we're going to make a hydraulic crusher. And I don't know about other places in the world, but in the UK, even when Tiberius came out on Robot Wars, people thought it was a Razor clone. So we knew that there'd be that stigma. So that there were certain things where we said, we, we're going to do whatever is the best thing for this machine, not, not what makes it look pretty, not what makes it look away from Razor or make it look like Razor. We're going to do whatever is the best thing for it. Um, and I think one of the... So Grant's talking about the drive that was critical. So that had minimum requirements and we had to fit things around it. Um, but it, it was showing up that this was going to be quite a heavy thing if we weren't careful. So we, we would have to put a lot of work into making this machine super lightweight. So we were trying to come up with different ways of doing it. So Grant had already started on the layout for the chassis and how that might look and the head and things. But one of the big things that sort of triggered our path forward, which is still the same now, is revolutionising how the cylinder pivots. So a traditional, traditional hydraulic cylinder pivots, obviously, at the base of the cylinder and then at the end of the piston. So that's how they all sort of work. Um, and one of the things early on was we said, well, if we don't have it, pivoting at the base if we bring it so it's got knuckles at the top of the cylinder you can really shrink the proportion the element of the chassis that has to be under the stress of this hydraulic cylinder so the cylinder was going to put out 22 tons and that's a massive amount of stress to put through the entire chassis of your robot so if we can shrink that down then the strong bits only need to be smaller it needs to be the head in the front section so we created this weirdy sort of ram with these knuckles at the top, and, it, and it's still the same today. And that means that probably there's a section of... We, we released an image of Quantum when we did the generative design, and you've got this massive knuckly-type bulkhead with this tiggly section on the back, and that really highlights where the loads are going. So you can see the front portion of the chassis is where all the weapon 
forces go and then the rear of the chassis doesn't require anything. So it, it was very much about how do we get every single gram out of this machine to make it so it's actually a realistic proposition. Otherwise, you know, we're, it's not actually going to make weight and there'd be no point in it. Um, right. Um, you participated, you know, in the very first season of King of Bots. How, how did that happen? Did they, did they reach out to you? Like, how did you discover that this, the show was, was going on? How'd you make the decision, you know, that, uh, that this, this new Chinese show was, was the place for, uh, for your debut after, uh, after Robot Wars? Well, we, we actually met, um, Amy and Karma, who were sort of heading King of Bots at the time. We actually met those um, over in the US, didn't we, James? Um, at uh, David Kalkin's show. So we we went over there. We were, we were over in LA um, for various work projects and things anyway. So we thought we'd swing over to Robo Games. Um, have was a look. There was a photo there, wasn't there, of the... We, we sat down having lunch, the Robot Wars execs and the BattleBots execs, <laughs> and somebody leaked the picture on Reddit to try and <laughs> cook up a storm. <laughs> But we were in there to go to um, go to this show, weren't we? Yes, yeah. So we we went over to um, to Robo Games. It was our first time there, and we met um, Amy and Karma from King of Bots there, and they they were talking to us about the show, saying they're going to build the biggest show in the world, this huge BattleBots type arena, get teams from all over the world, huge prize money, and all of this. And at the time, we thought, you know. We've heard this a million times from places all around the world, and until they show you the money, um, it's it's probably not going to happen. But we we got talking to them anyway. Obviously, we'd just come off the back of doing Robot Wars, um, and said, "Look, if you're genuinely going to do this, here's a few facts and figures for what it's really going to cost you." We knew what um, it took to build a, an arena, and sort of. So we started going through sort of what their ideas of specs for this arena, where the size scale, the kind of budgets they're running for the show to sort of just get a scope them out a little and find out if they were genuinely serious and, and everything they were coming back with actually sort of started to add up. It was in the right kind of ballparks with actually, it sounds like they've done their research and uh, sort of actually well on their way with this. So we started talking to them and originally we were, thinking of sort of getting more involved with the production side and sort of helping out with arena design and build but in the end as james said we've it's sort of we've we've worked on robot wars we've been on battlebots both been on battlebots with different people's teams and helped out massively with the machines and things on those like beta but this was sort of an opportunity for us to get together and do our own thing together exactly as we wanted so we, we, we stayed in touch with King of Bots and just sort of see how it went and said, yeah, we're definitely interested in coming. Um, and then we started talking contracts and various things like that. Um, and obviously with these um, Chinese events, the language barrier can be quite tricky. So there was a lot of back and forward sort of confirm exactly what they were paying for such as a stipend for, for helping. No, you can't build. keep the robot after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in, in the contracts, I know the uh, Clash Bots, they owned all the robots after, and that was one thing we said. Like, you're not paying us to a stipend towards building it and then owning the whole thing after because it's just not worth it. And the ideas we wanted to put in, we didn't want getting shared around um, all the Chinese teams at the time. So um, 
we managed to negotiate that we would own the robots and that they would pay a stipend that would cover a substantial amount of the build. Um, they had an upper limit on the stipend and obviously Quantum uh, Spectre went above that. But the nice thing with that was we managed to sort of and agree a figure that allowed us to do a lot more than we thought we could ever do. Um, so with BattleBots and Robot Wars and things like that, we have to go and get our own sponsors, which we've never had a cash sponsor before. So um, we we pay for everything out of our own pockets for those. And it, it does sort of make you second guess what sort of, how much money you should be putting in, how many spares should you buy in, and should you really be doing things this way when there's a more cost-effective way. Whereas with King of Bots, we could lay everything down on the table and we could say, what is the dream machine we want to build? We can put the, the Lynch motors in, very expensive motors, but as far as we're concerned, they're the best on the market. So that, that's what we're having. Um, the best batteries we could find, that's, what's we, that's what we're having. Titanium armor, that's what we're going to have. And it was a, a case of what is our absolute dream machine and do that. And uh, King of Bots allowed that to happen. And so we were sort of really excited about sort of going in with our own creation with no restrictions or anything like that and uh, and sort of see what the the Chinese had to offer in terms of one the event and second in terms of the sort of ingenuity and and, and machines that they brought to the competition so that's sort of what kind of lured us in really just this no limitation on on what we could build in terms of cost and and all that side of things so we thought you know let, let's just give it a go it sounds like an exciting thing and what's the worst that can happen <laughs> we were really fortunate that um that our friend henry who was a producer on robot wars he filmed all this process as well and we, we released a bit of a, a series building specter and it was really nice actually to look back on it now and look at all the headaches and trials and tribulations that we went through to actually get this thing finished um I remember us getting it to King to King of Butts, and we just had our head in the machine the entire time, and and it was amazing to see all the other robots, you know, the um, what David Calkins came with the nasty drum spinner. You had Great White there, which you know is Death Roll from Battlebots, uh, Megabytes. So there was really gnarly robots there, but we didn't really have time because. We'd never run Spectre. Like we were still building it as we were going. We shipped part of it and carried on building the rest of it and busting suitcases. Um, we were really working up to the very last minute possible. Um, and we didn't actually have it working properly until the third fight. Yeah. Until then, until then it was still running on low power and we didn't realise. <laughs> yeah, I, I missed a port out in the, well, a, a pilot hole that worked the um, the regen cartridges in the hydraulic system. So uh, we were actually running a really low power uh, mode the whole for the first few fights. Um, <laughs> but uh, fortunately, no one really noticed. But just every fight, we were we were finding a major problem to to deal with. And it wasn't until we took out the biggest vertical spinner there, the two barbecue, that we went actually. This is quite a good robot. <laughs> we, we could actually—it's <laughs> actually a competitive robot, and we, I mean, we shouldn't have been surprised because you know we, we've been in the sport for some time. We you know, we like to think that we know what we're doing. I mean, we we've done the best of our ability in that thing, but it, it but and we we knew that we produced a nice robot, but we had no idea that it would actually be competitive. We didn't. There's one thing 
making a nice robot with nice stuff and fancy bits to it but actually having it come together and it work the first time you use it and it be competitive was a real surprise and i think we were just on such a whirlwind of adrenaline and no sleep and trying to keep this thing going and repairing the wheels and putting damn tires back on the thing because they kept shredding them every fight um that it wasn't until the semi-final that we actually went we're at the semi-final here <laughs> we've done all right I, the, the thing for us really there was that the robot literally it had had a just before it went in the crate we had a quick spin on the floor to make sure it worked and it, it went in the crate and we'd never actually properly driven it it hadn't properly crushed anything um, it wasn't until we were actually in our first proper fights that everything sort of came together and so for us it was sort of constantly is this going to work is it going to do what we want because although we built loads of bits of robots for different people and helped design things for different people um, and certainly did a lot on beta and, and various other heavyweights we hadn't actually ourselves built designed and built a full heavyweight from scratch for ourselves. um we, we've never done that so it was sort of a a thing of we think we know what we're doing <laughs> and we had a good idea that it should work but we'd never done it before and so going spending all that time and effort and going all the way to china to see it actually work and do well was uh, was pretty amazing really for us so it sounds like you were spending a lot of time you know inside of your robot during the competition so maybe this question isn't applicable but we have a we have a listener question from cameron hutton who asks do you have any funny stories from your travels in China? We have a million. <laughs> which, which one do you want to go for? The one where Henry almost gets arrested. Um, we've, we've got a lot of stories. Yeah. yeah. Henry and dad nearly went to Chinese prison. Um, there's, there's been a, yeah, a few things. But, um, basically, China things in china work very differently to anywhere else in the world where you go to battle bots or robot wars you turn up for 8 a.m 9 a.m start usually finish competitions by robot wars is about 6 p.m battle bots is 7 8 p.m um and that's it you don't you can if your robot's okay you can go back to the hotel get some rest have a shower in the morning and come in um feeling okay china that just doesn't happen um <laughs> You get woken up seven o'clock in the morning. They bring you an egg in a bag um, for breakfast. <laughs> Literally a cold fried egg in a bag, um, in a sandwich bag brought to your hotel door with some what looked like chicken milk, um, apple flavored chicken milk or whatever was on the carton. Um, <laughs> and you, you straight in a minibus at sort of 7 a.m. Um, to the to the venue. And they say that you you're going to be on in half an hour. You've got, you've got half an hour to get ready, get your makeup on, go to this, um, go and do your pre-interviews and various bits. And so you'll get there absolutely shattered, still half asleep. And they take you to, it's not like robot wars and battle bots where you just quickly comb your hair. If you've got time, wash your hands and go into your fight. This is, you go to a full makeup room and there's someone does your face makeup and then you go to the next one, they do all your hair and, a di completely different wacky style every day. Um, and then you, you go down thinking you're about to go on and then you can be waiting four, five, six, seven hours 
um, before your fights. <laughs> so you you you're constantly thinking you're about to go in the arena in five or ten minutes time. So you've always got your head in the robot, quick, constantly turning it back on, making sure it works. Um, then you start doubting: Have I done this? Have I done that on the machine? And so we start stripping more bits down, checking everything, rebuilding it back up again. And so we were just constantly on the sort of this strange sort of edge of being mega excited and nervous. We're about to go in our fight and then constantly doubting, have we done this on the robot? Have we done that? Because you're just waiting so long. Then you finally have your fight at what potentially midnight and think, oh, thank God that's done. Let's just go back to our hotel room. You go back, take your team jackets off. And then they come and tell you, oh, you've got an interview scheduled in half an hour. And this is one o'clock in the morning. Um, and so you go on another little mini bus round to the interview rooms. And then you're waiting out there for another few teams to have interviews. So sometimes it was at two, three in the morning by the time you've actually finished your your interview. The, and the funny bit was the, um, the, the on the first King of Butts, they had an auto queue, didn't you? So... Uh, you would you would read off what was on the auto queue, but there'd be no like warm up or anything. You just read it, and you're really tired, and you get to a point where you just you don't even bother correcting the the bad English in it. You just say it as it comes out, <laughs> and it's just my robot be good. <laughs> and that's interviews done. <laughs> and, and- sort of when this sort of goes on for a few days you can imagine that obviously um we start getting a bit tired and agitated at times and so i you hear about these celebrities who start throwing tantrums at times and saying they're not doing this and not doing that or you can you can start to understand why (laughs) when you're uh when you're over there and we we started getting pretty um, pretty wound up at times, didn't we, where we just take our stuff up, take our mics off and just go and wait out, sit on the bus or wait. <laughs> we it, it, it's different because you've got this language barrier and you've also got a very different cultural barrier in that they don't like to... The, the people who aren't the bosses there uh, are assigned to you to help you and be your translator and things like that, and they don't as a cultural thing, they don't like to disappoint you or let you down or give you any bad news. And so getting over that thing of of one person saying, oh, yeah, you'll definitely be in, in a minute, in a minute, in a minute, you're on next. <laughs> what, why aren't we on? <laughs> We're supposed to be on like 10 hours ago, according to your schedule. But um, once you get over that, it's, it's an amazing um, opportunity. Yeah. Yes, there have been difficult times, but there's... To be honest, there's difficult times at every TV show. I mean, you got you got to remember that this isn't like a, a singing competition where you can practice your singing at home and then you you turn up and you do it. You you've put so much into it. It's all you've almost run ten marathons before you actually get there, and then so you're exhausted, you're emotionally drained, and then you have to perform otherwise. And if you don't perform, all of that was for a waste. Um, there was a there was a bit of a behind the scenes thing that we did for BattleBots last year, talking to uh, one of the presenters there, um, and and we were, I, w- I was watching a documentary on Mo Farah, and he was talking about how he goes away for three months before the Olympics to these training camps, and he doesn't get to see his family and things like that. And I thought it was a bit strange that you would do that, but actually we looked at it and went, we haven't seen our families for God knows how long. We, we would go to, we would go to 
we would go to the workshop at like nine in the morning. We wouldn't get home till midnight at the earliest. That that would be an early finish. And this would happen for a good two or three months before a competition. And that includes weekends. We wouldn't we wouldn't see our families or our children. And and you go, actually the the dedication that teams not just ourselves, but teams in all of these shows is really not seen by the viewers. And it's such a shame because you, when you watch these shows, it looks like everybody's having a great time and you know, you just, well, I just knocked this together, I just machine this and we're going to destroy the opponents. But what's actually happened behind the scenes is people have put in a marathon amount of work and you, you don't see any of that. You just see the, the end product. Um, and so it, it's, it, it, it was really nice to, for the opportunity to be able to do that. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's incredible amount of um, sort of devotion that you put into these things. I forgot what topic we were even on there. Well, <laughs> well, 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 weird stories from that. What was the oh, yeah. with Henry? Well, the, the, so Grant was talking about schedules. Um, so that was bringing me around to we we've been working on Spectre all the time. Um, and these fights are going on, whatever. And we, we were scheduled to go in the arena at like 6 p.m. or 4 p.m. for the grand final fight. Um, and so the emotions of getting ready and preparing and Spectre's there, it's being weighed, it's on the trolley, it's, it's at these big hangar doors that open to reveal you. And the opponent's not ready and, and it keeps knocking back and... I think it got to about, what was it, about 11 p.m. at night yeah. before they were actually ready because the, the the opponent that we were fighting in the final kept making these different types of forks and trying them in the test arena and then going back and modifying it. And the production company were just allowing them to take whatever time they needed to make these attachments to, to beat us. And so the, the emotional thing of going into that final of trying to not get worked up and agitated and and exhausted um yeah that that was that was a, a massive amount of pressure which is completely different to um to the other shows but um something that you wouldn't change for the world um yeah yeah not, not, not to henry getting nearly arrested so uh you're probably better at telling that one aren't you good <laughs> which time when the with the welder <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. So the um, King of Bots two, we were all getting pretty agitated by this point. We'd done a lot of a lot of waiting around. So so Grant's stuck in the celebrity room where all the team captains are, and he can't even look at the robot. So we're preparing the robot, and we have no idea what's going on. And nobody else does. Um, and we bought it. We we got fed up of waiting for a Chinese welder to turn up. So we, between us, we we bought a welder. Um, and this in a great big smelting factory, uh, like a disused factory, so we can have a wander around. A pretty amazing place. Um, but they, we started to do a bit of welding, and there was this door there. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's just put the welder in there and plug it in, so um, you know it doesn't get rained on it and stuff like that. And then production was stopped, um, and uh, our translator was taken off and was going to get fired. And it's like the the Chinese government had been on saying that somebody had broken into their 
building <laughs> and uh, they wanted to find out who who had got into this building how they got but, into it because it wasn't supposed to be an open door it, it was basically that the the the, the, the um the, the the main power room um thousands of volts of electricity for this entire um metal production facility and uh, yeah that the entire thing was live still <laughs> so it, they were they were looking to try and put uh, blame it on someone to put someone in prison for this thing. So um, yeah, that was a, a, a stressful day. <laughs> wow, I feel like this is a good segue because um, we've heard like rumors. I, I feel like you know um, we've talked to so many people who've now competed on on King of Bots, and it's kind of like a bunch of blind people describing an elephant. You know, like we we hear parts. You know, like oh, yeah. one person will tell us all about all of the sketchy safety things that happened. Another person will tell us all about how they didn't get paid for their robot. They never got their stipend. Another person will tell us, you know, they were pressured. They felt like they were pressured to lose a match because, you know, CCTV doesn't want to see, you know, a non-Chinese team, uh, you know, winning. Um, Like for you, like was, you know, could, could you kind of share with us like your perspective on King of Bots, you know, um, yeah. how, how true are these rumors, you know? So it, as with everything, there's always an element of truth. Um, there's a lot of stuff said about King of Bots and how it works. And like you say, people not getting paid. And there is almost, there is always a, a small element of truth to it, but a lot of it has been blown massively out of proportion. So hmm. We've never had um, a time where we've not been paid in full. Every series uh, we've been paid as agreed up front, the, the first part of the, the stipends up front, you, the rest is to be paid however many days after the competition airs or after the competition's finished. And there's always been a bit of a delay um, between every series of getting the final bit, but they've always been fairly open on saying, uh, look, we've just got a an issue with invoices and things. So you have to send all your... In- this The bill stipend is for the actual sort of cost of certain components and things. So there's there's usually always a, some administrative delay or so on getting that done. Um, but they have all paid um, properly and fairly um, for, for what's been agreed. So the... Up until this third series that they've done, King of Bots 2, um, they've always paid in full, um, no issues. The biggest issue was always actually getting the robots back and shipping. Um, it, by the time they'd faffed around, sorted it, and gone through customs and, and had issues because there's things in the crates. If one person's robot's held up, it holds up everybody's. Um, and that's always caused a reasonable delay on getting robots back, which is why we actually ship all of our robots in suitcases. It's about nine or 10 suitcases. I think we take um, between the three or four of us. And that, wow. that's why we, we do that. And we bring our robots back with us and we have no issues whatsoever. This final um, series, King of Bots 2, um, again, they're paid in perfectly well up front. And there has been a delay. They've paid a, a small amount of the remaining stipend left. But our understanding is that um, that they've been fairly open about is that actually um, some of their major sponsors haven't actually paid up. And so there is no money there to um, to pay at this point of time. But they've assured us that they are working on ways to, to make sure that happens. So no one's been kept in the dark or out of the loop on, on how that works. And there's absolutely no 
reason to believe um, that they're just sort of trying not to pay um, to, to get around it or anything. They'll be very open and, and apologetic on that. Um, I think it's just general. Is They've got a cash flow problem because they haven't been yeah. paid by a sponsor. Um, and it is, it's not good for anybody. Um, but in these situations, you can either take these people to court and try and force your money and bankrupt them even further, or you can try and work with them to to help them get another commission so then that money can then pay you. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not a nice situation for them or anybody. Um, no. So it's tricky. And... <laughs> And culturally, they are very di- they are very different. Um, the safety there's been some there's been some awful bits, but then their arena is probably the best arena in the world for safety. So there's it, it's unfair to point them out as a as the bad ones. Yes, there's there's been some terrible things, um, but I think yeah, you, I mean, you, the, the, you the, can the, find that at all. Yeah, the, the main thing for the King of Bots that we've been, that, and the reason we do go back is that obviously, particularly their first event was their very first event they've ever done. It's the first time they've ever really seen proper fighting robots. And so you expect some teething issues here and there. But the thing we've been really impressed with is that as soon as we mention an issue or say this is a problem, they will get it sorted. And sometimes they'll sort of try and blow it off as, oh, this is fine over here, it's fine in China. Um, you say, well, look, it's not fine for us. And if, if you want the competition to go ahead, this needs to be rectified and safe for us. And they will do everything they can. They'll stop production and make sure that that is sorted for you before you have to enter that area. So, for example, one of them was um, just some, uh, and this is fighting robots, some lights around each pit bench. And they had some Chinese local companies come in and do the wiring. And... Um, somehow i think it made one of the benches was live um and so obviously luckily they they stopped the entire production everyone went out until they got a company back in to just make sure everything was fine and sorted so there 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 have been teething issues with things and some sort of safety issues but nothing nothing sort of that makes you believe they're doing things in a way to just cut costs or to 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 do just because it's cheap and easy they have always sort of rectified any problems and given you confidence that they are doing their best to make sure the event is as good as it can be yeah, it's right. i think that they it's the, probably the first time that these people have been dealing with um western people we obviously do have different standards and it does have to be as if, if you know us we're very much pro safety and making sure that this sport has been safe like we were the first people to do testing on polycarbonates at all um so, so we, we like to sleep at night when we host events they have to be safe um and i think for them that there are the, there's been issues but they've you you just have to give people the opportunity to rectify those um and, and so, some of it was even the builders either mm. new builders or even established builders doing things where you go you know, if this was a Western series, those people just wouldn't be in the pits then. Um, but it's just about teaching them, making sure that you put things in place to to ensure that these issues don't reoccur again. Um, yeah, I, I think the arena safety is concerned. The arena was 
very good. Really, no expense spared on that. Um, but the, the, the being a new event, so you, you, there's learnings to undertake. Um, but yeah, the, there's there's plenty of things where you go, oh my god, I can't believe we're here. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we got set up for the new year thing, and but you go, this this is a this is a very different uh, competition. Um, and it's very new. They're sort of learning as they go along, and they are making improvements. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I I would go back so long as they pay the remaining balance that they owe the teams. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, transitioning over into uh, to Robot Wars, we have so many listener questions. So maybe we can go lightning round style, <laughs> so sure. we can get to all of them. Um, you know, I wanted to start off with. Uh, a question from B is for BattleBots illustrator Caleb Kempson, who asks, which was your favorite house robot to rebuild for the reboot of Robot Wars? And what was your favorite or least favorite part of working as technical consultants for the show? This was a very similar question that was also sent in by Pat Maloney. So favorite, favorite house robots and uh, best part, worst part of being technical consultants? Yeah. Well, thank you for the questions. Um, so it, it was really nice to be, we, we were sort of headhunted to bring the show back. Um, so when we looked at, uh, it, it was really nice to be in there from a very early stage so we could really make our mark on it to make sure that it felt like a new version of Robot Wars. It didn't feel like just continuation of the original one. So it was really nice to be able to, to do that. Um, as far as the house robots are concerned, we we were not given very long at all to design and create them. I think it was about two months, two and a half months to design and make them. Um, so that was pretty tricky. So we, we, we split up into different teams. So I looked after most of the dead metal. Um, Grant, you were on shunts, weren't you? Yeah, um, my you know, Alan was working with us. Um, and then we all came together to build Sakilat. Um, so it, it was really nice to sort of try and reveal who they were to not just recreate them. Um, because when, when you look at the original Robot Wars, it was very 90s, it was very scrappy, it was very um, old school feel. Um, and obviously if you just brought that back and just made them bigger and stronger, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be right for the audience. So we were trying to work out how do you modernize them? How do you say that the house robots went off, they carried on fighting, now they come back, what would they be like if they'd come back? So Sikilat's armor would be a little bit more futuristic, so you're taking in inspiration from Call of Duty and gaming, things like that, and Halo. Um, yeah, their, their metal would stop being like a scrap heap type robot, like a a pile of junk welded together and he would it would be much more sort of fitting if he was more alieny organicy and um, so you still got the same sort of structure but you're sort of um trying to make him look more futuristic now um and same with Kilatsu. so before his helmet sort of covered completely who he was so you didn't really see who Sakilat was so by removing effectively the top half of his helmet we tried to reveal who Sakilat was that, that it would be this sort of cyborgy skeletal um creaturey alieny type thing to give 
just try and bring them, give them a bit more character rather than just beefing them up. And there's a lot more stuff that we would have loved to have done. So Shunt should have had big triangular tank tracks on it and flames coming out the exhaust. Um, there's a lot of stuff. So a lot we're supposed to have uh, all moving heads so we could give them additional character. But that just gets to a point where you just run out of time and it wasn't it we we weren't paid to do things like that so series on series we we made improvements to the robots that we weren't paid for but as fans of the show we we just really wanted to make them the best they could be so we improved a lot hydraulic uh hydraulic system for the jaws um and we machined some nice five axis jaws on there to make them as nice as possible um there's lots of bits that we did to um, Shunt and Matilda to just just try and do as good a job as possible because we're fans of the show more than anything, um, and we we really wanted to we really wanted to not let the show down in that respect. If you had to choose one of the house robots, which one was your favorite build? For for me, it would be Shunt. Um, Shunt was all my favorite always my favorite and um yeah it's just nice simple and deadly and uh, yeah i i, I really like shunt <laughs> i'm gonna go dead metal just because i i really like the alien futuristic-y melt through the opponent style <laughs> i love it we have a, a two-part question about the house robots from michael clements so first part if you were to compete with a legal version of one of the house robots, which would it be and why? Well, this is an interesting question because before the four house robots were signed off, we actually created concept art for a house robot, which turned out to be Spectre. So, um, cool. Yeah, so big biter grabber lifter type machine was um, was our sort of new house robot idea that's. Uh, they never made it through. So yeah, that that's what turned out to be our competition house robots. <laughs> that's <laughs> very cool. It, it, if I was to take one, um, it wouldn't be Matilda. Um, I, I, I don't think I could bring myself to bring a spinner into a competition at this stage. Um, there's a lot more sort of avenues I'd like to explore first. Uh, Kilolot's certainly too complicated to, to get in weight. So I would probably look at going with, again, shunts. Um, just a, there's a lot more I think that can be that can be got out of axes and hammers, um, and hopefully with uh, John Reed and Gabe working on the new beta, they might show you what uh, the kind of system that we would look into putting into a competition shunt. Yeah, I think yeah. shunt would definitely be the most competitive if you just had to stick it in there, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, the second part of the question from Michael: Was it ever considered to build the house robots so that they could self-write? Oh, yes. no, so we, we looked at this didn't we so there's there's two parts to being a house robot one is being bigger and heavier and more powerful than the competition machines but the other is that the robots have to have some kind of weakness it's like having the the big boss at the end of a computer game that can't get killed and it's like, it doesn't make much sense and it doesn't add any excitement Whereas if you add a few weaknesses into them like the bucket on the bucket and the side armor protection for shunts was only very thin, so it could take damage. Um, and the some of the, the armor and, and various panels on the others are, 
and not that strong in areas purposely so that they do have a weakness where the competitors, if they decide to get cheeky, they can take them on um, and they're not just going to get, the, the competitors won't just get tranced all over. So adding a self-writer on them sort of seemed like the wrong thing to do. Um, partly takes away from the character, but when someone like Apollo comes and flips them over, that's really exciting for the audience to see. And it's um, it's really exciting for the teams to have a name to try and take out the house robots, knowing that they could get destroyed in the meantime. But at the same time, there is a small chance that they could make a name for themselves by taking on the house robots. And if you take that away from them, I think the house robots lose a, that, a big element of sort of um, that kind of interesting feel in the arena. And, and you wouldn't get robots like Apollo trying to flip them or like John Reed um, trying to axe, uh, axe them. Um you'd lose all of that element from the show. So I don't think we would look at adding a self-writer to any of them in the future. Yeah. And it was quite nice. One of the episodes, I'm not sure if it's actually made it on TV, where Shunt got flipped over and Matilda went and self-writed it. Um, I'm not sure if that actually made the show, but it, it made for quite a nice thing where the house robots went and helped each other um, to, to get back in the action. We have a question uh, from Robot Wars fan Jonas Kurz about Sergeant Bash, the uh, house robot that didn't make it into the Ruby, re reboot. You know, can you talk about that decision? Yeah, well, the initial decision was for four house robots. They had budgets to, to make four for the first series. And we, we put some ideas forward. One of the main idea we wanted was for two um, of the original house robots like um, which I think was Kill a Lot and Matilda. We wanted to revamp those, and then two entirely new ideas. As it happens, they wanted to. In the end, they went with four of the original sort of style, and so um, they originally went with with obviously um, Kill a Lot, Dead Metal, Matilda, and Shunt. And we, for future series, then we realised that we needed another house robot that would be able to take on the spinners a bit more because the the horizontal and vertical spinners were getting so savage. And you've got Matilda and Shunt, um, so Matilda and Dead Metal, that don't really have the armor and the capabilities to be going in battle after battle with multiple carbides and aftershocks. Um, they would take so much damage. And if if a spinner got out of control in the arena, we needed a robot other than Kill a Lot of Shunt that could take them on and, and keep, keep everything safe. So um, Sergeant Bash was the next machine that we started working on designs for. Um, and came up with some really nice ideas for that, which I, I think would have been the best house robot of all of them. And that would have been a complete redesign of the style and the shaping of it. So a much more sort of military style machine with a big sort of uh, bomb disposal type feel to it, uh, huge tank turrets and big chain flails on the back, like a huge wide drum. Um, so we'd already got to that and that was something that was being looked at for future series until unfortunately um, things got put on hold so yeah I would I would have said that uh, Sergeant Bash was very close to uh, coming to reality very cool we have a uh, question from friend of the pod Jevin Woodrow who produces the really excellent YouTube series this week in robot combat uh, he asks, how on earth did you get dead metal up on the wall? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I'm trying to understand the context. Hopefully you, uh, you understand the question. Yeah, that, that was, um, so, so we look after the house robots. Um, and 
dead metal in particular is a pretty big thing to have lying around in your office. Um, so we thought, oh, it'd be nice to try and make a bit more of a museum of it. So we, we hung it on the wall. Um, so we, we, we've got... Uh, got a great big steel beam that goes above it and we, we did the load calculations in CAD and worked out how much the beam would flex and um, welded on some hooks on there so it's almost like hooked on like um like a uh, like a like a leg of lamb <laughs> up to the side of the wall um it was, it was quite risque trying to get yeah. stuff there but unfortunately we we can't get the forklift up uh offices are on uh this old mezzanine floor and we can't get the forklift up there, so there were five of us, I think there were, yeah. just to sort of lift it up on up vertical onto its claws. And then we got a high lift pallet truck to lift it up as high as that would go. And then two of the the standard trolleys that um, we lift all the standard robots for, uh, the, the robot carts at BattleBots, one of those under each claw with a... Um, uh, with like a trolley jack type thing underneath it, um, like a axle stands underneath just to get the height. And then with multiple people holding it pressed up against the wall, we just slowly lifted it up and into position. But um, yeah, that was a that was a big job. Wouldn't want to take it down. <laughs> no, it, it stays there forever now. <laughs> we have another question from Cameron Hutton who asks, if Robot Wars were to magically come back again, what changes would you implement building from series 10? We have a related question from James Williams who asks, if Robot Wars were to hypothetically return now that you've seen BattleBots and King of Bots in person, is there anything you would do differently with the arena slash house robots? So essentially, if we rebooted it a third time, you know, <laughs> came back again, um, what, what changes do you, would, would, would you make to the show? So I think there's slightly the, different ideas on this. Yeah, I, th I think there's there's two things, two ways that you can go about it. So, so the the problem is Reviteers are too good now. <laughs> like you you watch BattleBots, and even though most of the teams are amateurs, they're building these at home in the spare time. They're building them, borrowing work tools and stuff. They look like professional piece of kit, and that's actually been, I believe, the downfall of Robot Wars in the UK. So. The original Robot Wars, you would watch that with your mum and dad and you go, oh, dad, can we, you know, Razor's just one, can we go out in the shed and we can go and get that chainsaw that you don't use anymore and we could try and chop Razor's arm off. And that, that was a very tangible, real thing here in the UK. Um, but the latest series, you watch things like Apollo and Carbide and Aftershock and pretty much all the teams and they all look so good that you no longer as an audience member and it's the same with BattleBots completely and King of Bots you, you no longer sit there at home and go we can do this anymore um, it, it's out, it doesn't feel within reach of your general viewer anymore um, so I think if Robot was, was to come back one, one way would be to make it more extreme or another way would be to turn it turn it in a way where you either have different teams each week or you potentially say, this is your stuff. You need to make a fighting robot out of this. You now go away. You've got two days to do it um, and see what wacky creations people can come up with. So you can kind of get it back to being that raw thing of uh, father and son and mum and daughter at home. Watch it and go, we can take part in this. Come on, let's sign up for next series. Yeah, so... I I think that's certainly an 
an important thing, and that was probably the biggest difference between Robot Wars and BattleBots. Because BattleBots is this real sort of high-flying Formula One NASCAR-type sport, wanting the best, the best in the world, and these really impressive machines. And Robot Wars was sort of they wanted some of that, but the big thing Robot Wars wanted was to get viewers at home wanting to get involved and sort of feeling they can get involved, which is why you see a very different style and type of machine on, on Robot Wars. But I think going forward to reboot it, I've sort of I think I've had my eyes opened a lot by King of Bots and the the way that they're doing it completely different to BattleBots as a straight up competition. It's more like a, a reality game show and it's so exciting as a team to go there and not know what format of fight your next fight will be. It could be a 10-way fight. It could be a, a tag team fight. It could be um, a team game with five five, five other machines, or it could be a one-on-one. And it's it's really interesting sort of trying trying to sort of come up with tactics with almost no time to spare, um, not knowing the sort of fight formats you're going to do. It was actually a really interesting thing to just mix it up from your standard competition. And I think there's room for both of those. Um obviously the serious competition and this uh, real wacky kind of game show type thing. And I think Robot Wars would probably want to be somewhere in between where it's, we've, we've seen the standard competition for the last 20 years um, and the standard format. And I think to, to keep it exciting that that would need to change here in the UK. I, th- I think there's a lot to learn from King of Bots and the popularity that that's had in China uh, of what works and, and us having firsthand experience of that and sort of, reigniting the excitement for fighting robots has uh, has been a pretty impressive experience awesome yeah I, you know it's funny i i agree with both of you um <laughs> you know i i feel like original run of BattleBots, there was something really special about the idea of you have no idea which robot's going to come through the door. You have hundreds of robots, um, you know, people, uh, there is no selection process. Like if you can pass safety, you can, you can compete. Um, I, I also think that there's some really interesting elements where when you have teams of robots so that you can cheer for a team, you can, you can kind of rally behind a team and um, feel like an emotional connection with a group of builders who are kind of, you know, all together kind of, more of a reality show series uh, feel. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that combat robotics is big enough for many different types of formats and many different types of fans. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, I'd love to get into BattleBots. Um, BattleBots 2019, you know, when you uh, arrived with Quantum. Um, and in the very first episode, obviously your your match against Blacksmith, we have a question from a listener, Matthew Cahoy, who asks, what was your reaction when you got stuck in Blacksmith? <laughs> it, was, it, it was real disappointment, wasn't it? Yeah. It was real frustration. Um, as soon as, like, we, we, we fought with Spectre for a long time, so we, we, knew, we know how the robot reacts and things, so... You tend to pick things up and you slam them around and that, that gives you the opportunity to take them over to arena hazards and more so slam them about a bit because um, that's what we want out of our machine. But as soon as we lifted up Blacksmith, it, it was the first time I believe that an AR armoured robot had ever been punctured and we saw that it wasn't shifting at all and it's, and and it, it was a real anticlimax for us because... 
this was the first time you know there have been a lot of hype about what we were doing and, and you know that we were really appreciated that people were excited to see what we'd done and we don't want to let people down and it felt like personally it felt like a bit of oh is this what quantum is and that that was really disappointing for me um and then as as far as the competition points of view the the last thing we want is to um to get stuck in a robot because from there you, you can't do anything with them you, you've only got the opportunity to just get the match stopped and restarted whereas if you can let them go you can reposition so you notice in the final of king of bots one we bite all of the opponents slam them into a wall and then we can reposition and bite the more vulnerable parts so we worked our way around to get to the batteries and if you can't let go of somebody you can't bite them in a vulnerable position um the robots are so fast now you just get hold of them as soon as you can once you've got them you can then play out your strategy if you get stuck you can't do that and so, so it's not good from a competition point of view and and it's and it's really not good for us personally because the quantum is us effectively you know it it's, it it demonstrates it, it is who we are um and we didn't we didn't come to battlebots to try and win it in in a dull boring way we we came to try and show what we can do and getting stuck in a robot straight away isn't isn't that no uh, the frustrating bit was that that was our first fight as well we didn't get a chance to show what we've done at king of bots uh, we didn't get to slam people around and and show what we're capable of so the first thing the american team sees we got 10 seconds driving grab them and then we're stuck and it's sort of a bit anticlimactic when we were really hoping to go in and pierce the flame tank and get some big flames going and slam them around and all the rest and that that just didn't happen and so it was sort of is nice to have won the fight but we'd have much rather have had a good fight and lost. Uh, we have a deeply technical question from a fan of the pot uh, named Clepton Gilroy who asks. What's the thickest amount of AR500, grade 5 titanium, and 6061 aluminum that you estimate quantum could pierce with one tooth? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but to, be, to be honest, we, we, have, uh, we don't know what it'll actually pierce. We, we set up a test bed, and we punctured certain AR material, and then we... we Got a special tooth with a special light socket in it for um for a super hardened thing and and that exploded when we tried to to bite another material so so we we don't actually I don't think we've ever actually put it to full power yet um no it's it's never been turned up to full um, I'd say we at uh, in a competition we probably turn it up to about eighty percent um we've got like a 21 kilowatt motor on the end of this thing it's it's pretty powerful but um we i'm not sure yeah we, we've never really tested it to absolute full power and, and i don't think, I don't we, think we've we, ever bitten a titanium robot have we yes we have yeah but only thin it's usually cracked cracked through um mm. but yeah it's ultimately you need to go very thick to to stop it there hasn't been a robot that we've got onto and tried to crush that we haven't been able to pierce in some form or another. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be a trade-off. If you want to stop us, you've got to go very thick. 
But th then the, the problem with that is if you have thick armor as, as Valkyrie Vandas, like you snap the tooth off or whatever, or you put thick armor on, your robot, that doesn't make your robot invincible or nullify the weapon. You still have to take 14 tons of force through your robot. Um, so obviously with Valkyrie, it's actually squashed the robot a bit and, and squashed their weapon motor. So you, you tend to find that there isn't a robot out there that you can't damage somehow, whether it's even if you can't puncture through it, it doesn't really matter. We have a question from Nelly the Elliebot Captain Sarah Malian, who asks, how does it feel to be the ones responsible for the grumpy owl meme? <laughs> I do feel sorry for Al because I mean he must have been frustrated as well. It was his first fight. And nobody knew it was going to happen. I think he was he was in two things of I don't think he realized that we would actually puncture his armor. I think he was he was pretty confident that his AR material would stand up. So I think there was the shock which quickly turned to oh man, we're now stuck. And then when we were separated and we the second half of the fight was delayed, we knew that it would happen again because we saw how the materials reacted. Um, even if we had the power of specs, uh, power of quantum trying to pull the tough out, it wasn't coming out. It was the. So I think he, I, I felt sorry for him because when you get there and you've put all this work into your machine and you know, every, you know we put tons of work into ours and they put tons of work into theirs, the last thing you want is to not perform when you get in the arena and when your robots get stuck together, whether that's because the weapon got stuck together, whether the forks get stuck in between each other's wheels or whatever, that, that's just really disappointing. Um, but it is good to, that um, a meme was made out of it and it's probably the best one. <laughs> uh, we have a question from Andrew Harvey who asks, what measures will you take in the next season of BattleBots to prevent the teeth from getting stuck in competitors' robots? Is there anything that, that you can do, you know, like... Uh, have you uh, have you kind of worked out like how to mitigate that? Honestly, we... without without having the tough removable, if you puncture AR five hundred, that's it. Will stuck. It, it it's going to get stuck. You can make it whatever shape you like. You can make it out of whatever material you like. If you puncture AR five hundred with slow puncturing weapon, it's stuck. You know, that's so it it gets to a point where if this is something that if we either then we we really need to decide is this something that we that we're going to continue with if if all robots have okay. that material on top then you go uh, i mean the, 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 there's two ways of looking at it we we've tried machining tapered teeth greasing them up as well and all the rest and done tests and it still sticks purely because of the way that it it sort of cracks instead of cutting through nicely it cracks and leaves these barbs on and it just digs into the teeth so even with a taper it's like a Chinese finger trap and just gets itself even more stuck. But now it's known that only that one material so far seems to do it. And we've crushed loads of machines, probably put 100 holes in, in machines over the last few years. And that's the only time that it's ever done it. Um, and it was consistent in that material. And so I think it's it's partly the responsibility of other teams fighting us as well to, to say, like as they do with a spinner, they don't put um, don't put aluminium on to fight Tombstone because they know it'll just get torn up. They put suitable materials on to stop it. Knowing that AR500 
won't stop us piercing through. Um, there are better choices of materials to, to fight us with. And it's there's arguments of people saying, well, you got stuck, you should be disqualified. Well, there were also two uh, horizontal spinners that also got stuck exactly the same into, again, AR-500 armour and had to get separated in the arena. So they came, bar spinners hit the other opponent's side armour, got stuck in and needed separating exactly the same. So it's not limited just to crushers, but I think it's... Um, it's it's as much the responsibility of other teams trying to pick a suitable material to fight us with as it is for us to do as much as we can, like tapering teeth and uh, and greasing them up with various bits like that to to give us the best possible chance of of letting them go. As like we say, we've we've crushed so many machines in the past and never once had that happen. It is specific to that exact material. Right. Uh, moving on to the 2020 builds, we have a listener question from Graham Grizz Glover III, who asks, are there any major changes going into Quantum for the next season of BattleBots and any major changes that happened after the season got postponed and you were given extra time? So kind of two, two separate questions, design, design improvements, and then design improvements with, with the gift of, of extra time. So I think that the, the big change for us at BattleBots is they're having a new floor. So we, the thing with Quantum is we, we're used to fighting on flat floors and Quantum was designed to fight on a flat floor. So when, when we turned up at BattleBots and it was like fighting on sand dunes, uh, it didn't work too well. <laughs> so so uh, we, for us, once BattleBots puts a flat floor on it, it, it really would help our sort of design. But we, we're making quite a few things some of them are performance um because it, there is no point in going to battle bots unless we think we can win it you know that we're, we're not there for making up the numbers and we're not there to make a pretty robot that looks interesting but is cannon fodder it, it costs way too much money to do that so it has to be competitive um so, so there's quite a few things that we need to have a look at um after every fight in particular, the ones where we lose, um, we, you know, we we properly have a think about, okay, what went wrong there? How can we make sure that that does not happen again? Um, so the... the, we, the, I can't the simple, simple things like, like, like the front end against death roll, that's being mm. completely redesigned. Um, basically, the, the shape of their disc meant that when we first bit them and crushed them, it actually pushed their tooth pushed on the front wedge and it's actually flexed all the hard ox and popped it underneath and lifted our front wheels off the floor and so there's lots of little things like that that we found um throughout king of bots and battle bots that we'll be improving but also one of the big things we want to sort of take um add sort of design and machining skills to the next level in terms of generative design so Obviously, we were the first machine to extensively use generative design in the in the build phase, and as you can see, all the head, all the um, all the chassis, and everything is designed and machined using generative design. And one of the weaknesses is the self writer. It's a very lightweight titanium self writer, and now we're looking at doing this real sort of um, complex spine rib cage type. Um, generative design self-writer that fits on the back in aluminium so that's uh, sort of our major challenge really and then if we get time uh, we're going to look at we've redesigned a whole new hydraulic system as well that we'll look at trying to do as well so uh, 
that one's time dependent. What What do you think would look cool on Quantum? What What, what would you want to see if it came back to BattleBots? Uh, glowing eyes. Yeah, mm-hmm. like throw some LEDs in there. Well, nice. the, 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 the slight snag with that is the, the difference between... People often ask what the difference between Spectre and Quantum is. And Spectre's this living creature with the eyes and the skull and all the rest. Quantum's actually effectively like the dead version. It's got it's more of a skull than a than a face. So yeah. where the eyes are, it's got these sort of hollow sockets and hollow sections in the head. Um, so this is sort of more of a, a, a dead creature. And maybe you could add something in there. But I think one of the things we really want to hit on is giving it that sort of, a bit more of a creature look. And James's idea is sort of bringing sort of more of a dinosaur feel into it and starting evolving it with sort of small feathers sort of built into the head and working its way down the back as well um, and sort of having it as this strange dead dinosaur creature type thing. Velociraptor-y. Yeah. Sort I of love it. Feathered-y. Like, not, not like bird nice cockatiel feathers. I'm talking like <laughs> scrawny, <laughs> ravaged, black like, like quills going down decayed, yeah decayed yeah. quills like zombie dinosaur yeah. robot i yeah. actually want to do a bit of a stunt um in the, a machine the quantum head and uh, make a little plaque for it saying quantosaurus and have like a bit of a description saying it's like the most powerful bite that's ever been recorded in dinosaur history and try and sneak it into a museum and see how long it lasts <laughs> That, that's that's what I'd like to do before the next quantum is done. <laughs> we have a uh, a question from Team Orbi Captain Chuck Yu Huang, who competed with you at King of Bots, obviously with with Orbi Blade. Um, mm. Chuck Yu writes, "All of your builds are so beautiful. What is your design philosophy?" And mm. ju- ju- just one thing to say is he builds some of the nicest looking machines of anyone yeah. worldwide. Um, yeah. The effort he puts into every single part of that machine, they're all anodized, all got laser etched engraving on and things. And that, if he ends up going to BattleBots, then needs to be a toy made of that machine. It's, it's an incredible thing. Um, I think he's quite similar to us in that attention to detail is absolutely critical. Like we, There's not a single part on, on his machine, the same as as every single element is gone. Is this the best we can make it? Even down to like a little motor hub type thing, like a motor mount. Is this the very best way that we can think of doing this? It may still be a load of rubbish, but is this the best of our ability? And it's every single element. Each time we build a new robot, we have a look at each part and go, how can we do this better? Um, And not just to look pretty, but how do we make it perform to the best yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the initial concepts. We don't want to just build whatever the easiest thing is to win um, or, the, or the best thing to win. So the reason that a lot of people build spinners is because they're some of the, well, they are the most effective at storing energy and dishing out energy um, for destroying machines. But we like to sort of try and look at what's been done successfully and what hasn't. And try and go a route where people think, you know, like when Spectre first came out, people said, oh, it looks lovely, but it's not going to be competitive. A Crusher hasn't been competitive for years. And so we like to sort of take that thing that hasn't been done very well for a long time or hasn't been competitive for a long time 
and then work on how we can make that successful. Um, not necessarily, they're not designed purely just to win, but it's to show that you can do something different to what everyone else is doing. And I think once we've sort of achieved that, I think we've got close now, but I think there's a bit more to go with quantum. Um, but once we've achieved that with quantum, I think we'll then move on to a completely different design. And we've been talking a lot about doing a Walker next because there's a lot of sort of talk about the rules changing with walkers. And we think that could make it now that we could do a really competitive version and not just something like, like Mechadon back in the day was incredible, a lovely piece of art, but no one watching BattleBots back then genuinely believed that that could win. And if we could come to BattleBots with something like that, that after the first fight or two, people think, blimey, this thing actually has a chance of taking on Tombstone or taking on Chomp or, or Cobalt. Um, that's that's what we designed for. Um, this is a perfect segue for my next question. Uh, it's a second question from Chomp Captain Zoe Stevenson. Of course, you know, Chomp is going to be a walker. Um, mm -hmm. She asks, what matters to you most in picking a new type of robot to build? Obviously, you don't go for single tooth vertical spinners. What is inspiring enough to make a build worth the time and tears and money for you? I think it's we've probably got different things but for me it's it's a it's a personal it's very much a personal thing and it represents if you watch the um if you watch the building spectre series i think gabe summed it up really well in that it's it's a it's an artwork your robots and not to say that it's pretty or anything but it's your body of work so when you when these TV shows are announced and they say, okay, you've got three months to, to build your robots and then everybody turns up and opens the crates and you reveal your body of work. Um, and for me, that that's the point that it represents, your body of work represents who you are, what you're about. Um, and so it's very much a personal thing of we don't want to let ourselves down when we come to these events we we don't want to be the cannon fodder we we don't want to be the pretty robot that gets torn apart we we really want to go we can do this we don't we don't we don't want to do it in a traditional method we we want to show that as british engineers as a family of engineers we, we can do we can build a good robot and put on a show and we, we really want to build a robot that people switching on the TV, see it come into the arena and go, Oh my God, what, what's that thing going to do? That looks like it's going to tear somebody's head off. <laughs> you, you, you once, I mean, what, what, what was your first impression when you saw quantum first come in the arena? It looked like it, it was from the future. It looked like like it had come out of a time portal, and um, you know, it, it looked like a sci-fi kind of dinosaur, saber-toothed tiger, kind of like coming out. Uh, it was just so so cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's that thing of going well, not not a, yeah. It, it it needs to have people going. Oh, that thing! I want to see that in action. That's. That's what I want to watch. Uh, and it can't do the same thing every fight either. That, that's really important. Because if, if it does the same thing every fight, it'll become um, 
it become predictable and it'll become a bit sort of bland and boring. Um, I think a lot of it as well is that when looking to design a robot, James and I aren't the stereotypical BattleBots team that'll dress up in whatever outfit head to toe and be really sort of overly enthusiastic on the show. That's just not our character. We want the robot to do the talking and we want the robot to be the character. And so if we just go and design, um, let's say Tombstone, for example, Tombstone's a good example where, yes, it's, it's, it's a big bar spinner, but it's got character. People go into that and it's this big sort of evil type stereotypical badass machine that is just going in there to destroy things. And that's got its almost its own unique character. Chomp as well. Um, people look at that and there's, there's just nothing like it. And we want to build something that people can say, that's that's a Cooper machine. That is something these guys have designed. You can you can see from the offset and it's got its own character, its own style. And like when we say um, James is probably sometimes comes in a bit more conservatively with the driving, say we need to slow it down and do this. And my thing is that the character of the machine is 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 just this mental beast, and and that that's what it needs. Um, so it, it it's more about making the robot do the talking than than us having to ham it up and be the centre of attention. Um, if your robot could do that and people see your machine as this as a thing rather than just another robot in the arena that that's the entire philosophy behind designing them um and again uh, zoe and yasha do a, a brilliant job with theirs it's sort of testament to see when you go to an event like BattleBots and you walk around the pits and you've got people looking for maybe 10 minutes at a one vertical spinner and then five minutes at the next and then you go and see chomp on the table and people are around that thing for half an hour and they keep going back and keep going back. So thinking just trying to understand how it works and just marveling at, at, at the work they've done on it. And that that's what we aim to achieve is to sort of have people sort of looking at your machine and thinking, wow, how have you done that? How, how are you doing this? Um, sort of admiring the different ways we've done things um, compared to other robots. That's, that's, that gives a lot of sort of personal, um, achievements to, to what we're doing then. I love that. That is such a fantastic answer. Um, I wanted to close out the show by asking you just a couple of questions from BattleBot super fan, Mary Catherine Carr, friend of the pod, Mary Catherine Carr. Um, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> um, she asks, if you were to ask, if you were asked to make house robots for BattleBots, what would they be? Cool. That's a good question. I think it, it would have to be something beastly that's not a spinner scorpion. because you, yeah, you, you need like a six-legged scorpion. Yeah, with yeah. a great big flaming hammery thing that comes over from above. But you need the pincers to grab hold of. You need like great big half-inch armux pincer that you can just jam into a vertical spinner's blade. So yeah. the, the the whole point of quantum inspector was actually the head. You just you just ram it into their spinner and. Yeah, that might take a chunk out of it, but it doesn't matter. So, so you need this big jaw that just grabbed hold of it and went, ah, we've got you now, and then torch the bugger with the scorpion tail <laughs> and stamp on it, maybe. That, that's yeah, the, 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 there's a very different feel between Robot Wars and BattleBots, where Robot Wars was this very kind of almost junkyard feel, um, and BattleBots is more this sort of polished, um, futuristic show. And yeah, I, I think this real kind of polished metallic scorpion 
um, that just destroys things would be uh, would be the way to go. Or maybe you could have a robot that eats them, because you you, you you almost want the the house robot there to not not be a spinner but give out more damage, because spinners have been dishing out damage loads. But you need this thing that just gobbles up robots. So maybe maybe it was a scorpion that just picked them up and then fed it in its own mouth with their spinner going at full speed, and you just see it all go down its gullet, and then it's gone. <laughs> And uh, final questions. Do you give your daughter rides on your robots and do you hope she takes yep. a liking to robots someday? Yeah, so I, I've got a, a five-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son and James has got two three-year-old twin daughters. Um, and they're all sort of at different stages of enjoying and appreciating the robots at the moment. And like my five-year-old daughter, she, she comes into work with us fairly frequently and they they just absolutely love it like we've got this big um sort of like three meter tall robot arm that we do some like cnc um seven axis machining and things with and like she loves like, sitting on that thing <laughs> um she like sitting on matilda and things like that and, and watching the robots go uh, but yeah they even from the age of about one and a half to two just watching them on telly and then seeing them in real life they're it's they're just amazed by it. I've got some video of my daughter when she was two watching Robot Wars and jumping up and down with the when they when anything flips things and um, yeah, it's it's just amazing how this sort of fighting robot show can captivate people from literally as young as one and a half to two up to up to people like us and and much older. Um, and it's just something that they instantly gravitate towards and, and want to get involved with. But uh, yeah, my my daughter wants a pink quantum so. <laughs> I think it's it's that's the amazing thing about the show. And we we always used to do a talk to the teams just before um, Robot Wars filming, um, just sort of highlighting just how important it is that that those people are there and that they've built these incredible machines, and, and just understanding the gravity of what they've achieved to get those robots there. And so, when you put it in the arena, don't don't hold back. Don't. This is your three minutes to show the next generation of people what engineering, what the world is all about, giving them something amazing and exciting to inspire them. And those teams are going to be. They are the inspiration for the next group of children, and, and I think that's a really special thing, which is very difficult to um, to achieve nowadays but the the roboteers on robot wars were definitely those people and and we know that because that that was the inspiration for us that's really cool it sounds like you are well on your way to uh, producing a third generation of coopers who are building <laughs> building robots someday um, I want to thank you so much for both of you um, coming on the show and talking with us we cannot wait to see quantum in the battle box again soon yeah, thank you very much for having us. So I enjoy listening to your podcasts all the time. Just finish your one with Jump. Uh, it's uh, it's really nice and a, a pleasure to to be asked to come and join you guys. Uh, well, again, as James said, thank you very much, and fingers crossed um, we can get something together and be able to fly out and compete in the 2020 series of BattleBots. But uh, if if for any reason we can't, rest assured we'll be working on something in the background. Um, for the next one so we're uh, we're still working <laughs> well said we're looking forward to it
After the break, we'll return with Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're traveling to Israel, where a group of researchers are studying whether petting a robotic baby seal can, in fact, reduce physical pain. (laughs) They did this by hooking up 83 people to a device that delivers pain on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being no pain and 10 being the most intense pain sensation imaginable. So already, you know, the people signing up for this test are totally normal. They gave some of the people Paro, a robot that looks and feels like a cute baby seal, and allowed them to pet the robot while hurting them with this pain device. The people who were allowed to pet Paro said they felt less pain than those who who weren't given Paro, or those who were simply allowed to watch Paro from across across the room. (laughs) Uh, So... Uh, I encourage everybody out there to go look at Paro. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's lifelike. It really looks more like one of those, um, if you think back to like toy stores at the mall, like outside the entrance, there'd be like this little playpen for like robotic animals, like dogs that do flips and stuff. It's like that, Mm. but, but a seal. So I encourage you to look it up. But what do you guys think about sweet baby Paro? I'm not really Inuit. <laughs> okay, wait. Uh, uh, um, this is the weirdest robot story ever. <laughs> let's okay. torture you with baby seals. Yeah, let's this torture is, you. This is yeah. just the tip of the iceberg. Oh. <laughs> All right. I wonder how many more baby seal uh puns you know uh chris can uh, club out of this segment oh um, nice one um yeah that's like, just it, messed up luke <laughs> <laughs> um this is the weirdest story ever uh let me let me sign you up pay you a small amount of money give you possibly a robot seal to hold while we torture you <laughs> you know like <laughs> let me let me just you know burn your forearm with this device that we created specifically to burn people's forearms. And, um, you know, a third of you (laughs) will get sweet relief with this robot. (laughs) I, I, I I, I feel like Pero looks like your dog. All right. Chris and Lindsay, you, you have a very cute dog Watson. Um, and so when I, when I was, when I was reading the articles around this, I was curious, do you think that this would work? with Watson like if you had Watson and you were petting Watson would you feel less physical pain well when I look at Watson all my troubles melt away uh yeah I I currently have uh I currently have a, a loose piece of shrapnel embedded uh in my knee right now but I'm I'm, I'm all right on a scale <laughs> one to ten I'd uh I'd give it a one <laughs> Um, so yeah, maybe maybe there's something uh, something to this research. Uh, how much is a Paro if I wanted to purchase one? Uh, well, you can get your own Paro for the low low price of six thousand U.S. dollars. Let's see. <laughs> see what they need to do is they need to give every American a Paro to help them get through the rest of 2020. Mm. <laughs> 
forget the $1,200 stimulus. Give everyone a $6,000 robotic seal. <laughs> Think of all the jobs that would create. <laughs> well, that's about it for us today. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with a mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Bye. Pet your peril.